The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Wednesday, April 25th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, in a press conference alongside Emmanuel Macron, Donald Trump was asked about his embattled Veterans Administration pick. Dr. Ronnie Jackson, new revelations have him overprescribing medication. Also, he was drunk and banging on the door of a female colleague at a hotel. So Trump knew the question was coming. Here was his response. Now, I know there's an experience problem because lack of experience, but there's an experience problem. The Veterans Administration is very important to me. We've done a great job with it, as you know, with the Accountability Act and many other things. Now we're working on choice. It's going to happen. We're going to take great care of our veterans. That's a very, very important thing. We've done a great job. There's the experience problem. Twice, Trump says that, okay, okay, so he's acknowledging it, and yet the answer is nothing. It's a non sequitur. He just goes mid-sentence and changes directions, and he asserts that we've been doing a great job with the VA. Well, if that's true, why'd you fire former VA head David Shilkin? Yes, I get it. The very, very important thing is we've done a great job and fired the head of the VA. And then, and this is during the same answer, Trump begins talking about the Foreign Relations Committee vote to recommend Mike Pompeo to be Secretary of State. This question is all about Ronnie Jackson, remember? And Trump says this. He actually got an 11 to 9 vote, because as you know, Johnny Isaacson's vote counts if it isn't the deciding vote. So it was actually 11 to 9, with, I believe, an extent, uh, uh, there was one vote. What, what would you call that, John? Pres- pres- a, a present vote. Not present. No, no, present. Oh, it's called present. Okay. So it was 11 to 9, and that was, that was a terrific thing. But they failed to stop him. I could explain this a little bit because clearly the president can't. And in fact, he was asking John Roberts, uh, who asked the question for clarification. So Johnny Isaacson, Republican, Georgia senator, he was going to be a yes vote on Pompeo, would have been, but he was at the funeral of a friend. So the committee could have waited for a bunch of hours, could have made Isaacson come back early. It would have uh, happened. This vote definitely was going to happen. It was just a question of when and how much to hassle their fellow senator, Johnny Isaacson. So Chris Coons, Democrat of Delaware changed his vote. He changed his vote to present, and this was a kind and civil gesture. It essentially allowed Isaacson to grieve. It did give Pompeo the approval that he was certain to have. In fact, it was so kind that it moved committee chair Bob Corker to tears. So did the president pause for a moment to note this rare example of civility? He did not. It is unlikely he understood this rare example of civility, so he engaged in another example of incivility. But they failed with Mike Pompeo, and that was a big, big hit because they thought they could stop him and embarrass. The Democrats have become obstructionists. That's all they're good at. They're not good at anything else. They have bad ideas. They have bad politics. The one thing they do is obstruct. Well, they don't always obstruct, as we just saw with the case of Chris Coons. As far as the Ronnie Jackson nomination? But I told him, I said, you know what, Doc? You're too fine a person. His son's a top student at Annapolis. He's a high-quality person. I said, what do you need it for? 
New reports at the moment I'm taping this indicate that the good doctor supplied large doses of Percocet to a White House military staff member, kept a large supply of drugs on hand for personal use, sometimes without prescription, passed out drunk on an overseas trip with President Obama. One former medical staff member described Dr. Jackson as a kiss-up, kick-down boss. Well, I got to say, the first part does seem to be working. On the show today, I spiel about Don Blankenship. Did you know that Don Blankenship's trial was not about the mine explosion? No, I didn't, because it clearly was. But now, Don Blankenship could be the GOP nominee for West Virginia senator. But first, on this, the day the Supreme Court heard arguments about Trump's travel ban, we will discuss U.S. v. Korematsu, the decision that upheld the constitutionality of imprisoning Japanese Americans during World War II. Decisions never been overturned. Sometimes it's even cited as a precedent. Fred Karamatsu was living in the U.S. West, and he did not want to adhere to the government's dictates that he go to a, essentially, a detention camp. He resisted. And because of that, he and some other co-defendants were rounded up and punished and sentenced to the very detention camps that he was trying to avoid. His case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Karamatsu was the name of the case, now the infamous case, and he lost And to this day, on the books, is that U.S. v. Karamatsu decision. Now, the reason I'm bringing it up today is that today, before the Supreme Court, the Trump travel ban was being argued. And this case has at least echoes, it's been widely pointed out, with the Korematsu case. In fact, descendants of some of the people in that case filed an amicus brief before the courts. Joining me now is Martha Minow. She is a professor of general jurisprudence at Harvard. She was the dean of the Harvard Law School up until last year, in fact. And she has an interesting essay in Cass Sunstein's book, and we had Cass on, Can It Happen Here? Authoritarianism in America. And uh, I thought it would be a good day to talk to her about Korematsu and the current case. Hello, Martha. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for joining me. So how much does the actual facts or the actual uh, legal decision today, how much, if anything at all, will Karamatsu be mentioned or thought of or cited or in any way affect any of those nine justices on the Supreme Court with the case before it today? Well, I think that Korematsu casts a shadow uh, over the court right now, whether it's mentioned or not. Uh, it is a, uh, a case, as you say, uh, anti-canon, one of the most shameful moments of the Supreme Court and indeed of American law, but it has not been overruled, and it uh, does indicate that the court will defer to the government statement of national security needs. That's what happened in that case, even though subsequent uh, work has demonstrated that the government did not have reliable evidence and even manufactured some of the material presented to the court. And today's case deals with a uh, ostensibly national origin-based ban, but it also converges on religion, since every one of the countries in the ban is 98% or more Muslim uh, citizens, residents. Oh, I thought they recrafted the ban to include North Korea. 
Well, that is true. I, I apologize. The, the yep. original band, we're now dealing with the third inter- iteration. That's, right. That's another dimension of this case is that it's the Trump administration has struggled to come up with a formula that avoids staring us in the face with discrimination. So you're right. North Korea has been added. Now, if you look at the anti-canon, and I love that phrase, you have Plessy v. Ferguson, but of course that was overturned by Brown v. Board of Education. You have Dred Scott, perhaps the most shameful decision of all. In fact, Scalia mentioned Korematsu alongside Dred Scott once, but the, uh, the constitutional amendments overturned that. Since Korematsu stands, how much of a precedent does it have to be? Well, it's interesting. For some time, many constitutional scholars said, well, it's not been overturned, but nobody cites it anymore. Well, that's not the case. In recent dissenting opinions, Justice Thomas has cited it. In lower court opinions, it has been cited. It's uh, referred to in courts, including the Supreme Court and others, for general propositions like the level of review that a court is supposed to engage in, in dealing with equal protection cases. So it it has not been consigned to the dustbin by any means. And it is cited uh, not shamefully. Is it cited in the context of, well, we did it once with Korematsu. Let's use those. Let's use that um, level of scrutiny again. How is it cited? Well, it is cited on that question of level of scrutiny. And here's really kind of disturbing. The Korematsu decision is the first time the court said when race, or nationality is used as a basis for government action, then a judicial review has to engage in the most searching, the most in, uh, rigorous, uh, strict scrutiny. And yet, even under that test, the court upheld the internment. And so sometimes the case is cited for the proposition that even under the most searching, strict scrutiny, the government's action can be upheld. And that may happen here in Trump versus Hawaii. So Korematsu has never been overturned, but the government has gone to some lengths, perhaps not all lengths, but some lengths to make amends, including paying the families, or in some cases, the survivors of these internment camps. When you look at the cases that have been overturned, like I have to tell you, the, you need a, a plaintiff withstanding. You need someone with something at stake, and then the court will rule on that, and the, it, it will turn out that the new ruling will overturn the last ruling. So would this travel ban, could this travel ban have actually overturned Korematsu, or do you need something with facts much closer to overturn Korematsu? Because, right, you can't go in and say, we're going to look at this 1940-something case again and overturn it. You need something new. Well, yes and no. Uh, as you noted earlier, Brown versus Board of Education overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. Plessy dealt with segregation on, tr- on trains, train yeah. cars. And Brown versus Board of Education dealt with elementary and uh, middle and high schools. And so you can have quite a different fact pattern, even though the question, in some sense, has to overlap. It has to raise a principle of law. And there could well be a principle of law at issue here in the travel ban that is very much an occasion to consider whether Korematsu remains a good precedent. President's power over our borders and over immigration is very, very broad. 
That's a difference from the Korematsu case where it dealt entirely with people who were residents of the United States, some of whom were citizens. It really is raising a set of questions we never had to deal with before, like whether comments made by a candidate Trump are relevant to discerning the attention of President Trump. Right. That's an unprecedented question. What about the fact that uh, some, not many, but enough of his advisors and supporters argued for this travel ban while he was a candidate and literally cited Korematsu? If the court is taking into account statements that the candidate made on the trail to kind of discern what his motivation was, can they go so far as to take into account arguments made on behalf of Trump and the travel ban by surrogates? Well, I don't think that that counts as evidence of government intent, but I think that those are relevant to the consideration of the travel ban. There were uh, advisors to Trump uh, during the campaign who said Korematsu gives you authority to have a travel ban. And if he thinks that he is relying on that kind of authority now as president, that's absolutely relevant. Um, And it would be interesting to know whether his own advisors currently whether in the Department of Justice or the White House, are relying on Korematsu. Uh, It should be a third rail, but it, it, it is not. It still is quite a while to think about the possibility of mass internments of American citizens, despite this, you know, somewhat targeted travel ban on seven countries, isn't it? The relevance of Korematsu is present even today in the use of detention centers on our borders, which are, after all, inside of the geography of the United States, which do exist, which have been challenged in court, and they nonetheless persist. And these are uh, detention centers that are housing non-citizens in often deplorable circumstances. And in addition, as I note, uh, Korematsu is relevant to the possibility of health-based detention, as we saw with the Ebola outbreak and the courts rejecting challenges to detentions. Uh, One case in particular received a lot of attention of a nurse who had been exposed to the virus. And so even on our soil, even with citizens, detention is an issue. So, and this is leading up to what is going to be a curveball question, but recently the president talked about pardoning the boxer Jack Johnson, and this is actually an idea that others have had before, but the Justice Department does argue that their resources are better spent elsewhere than going back and trying to correct every wrong. Do you have any thoughts on the wisdom of pardoning uh, Jack Johnson? Well, I can make a general comment about the use of pardons. I think that the tradition that goes back to royal prerogative to pardon is one that the executive, whether it's a president or a governor, uh, should exercise. And if anything more so than is usually done, President Obama was surprised to find how cumbersome was the process of presidential pardons, and he tried to expand it um, uh, by the end of his presidency. And there are, uh, I think, uh, important ways that the legal system itself should correct its errors, and that includes the use of an executive pardon. President Trump's choices about which people to pardon uh, reflect his own values and, in some cases, 
undermining the rule of law, whereas I think that the real point of the use of the pardon is to strengthen respect for the legal system. Right, but if, as you say, it goes back to uh, the kings, and in fact it's probably rooted in the notion of the divine right of kings, and to imbue, in, to imbue in one person the power to give mercy without any review, it seems separate from so much of our constitutional system. I know we have an office for the pardon and, you know, President Trump ignores it. But I wonder if it's a only a good thing that the executive has in his power the ability to do this uh, without any review and without any oversight. It's a, such a great point. The other countries actually have preserved the pardon power but make it subject to judicial review. And I think in many ways that would be better um, so that we could make sure that the grants of the pardon are not inconsistent with, uh, with the law, with the Constitution. I, I do think that the use of a pardon office can uh, provide some checks uh, on the prerogatives of an individual. But, you know, we're living in an age of such resentment and forgiveness, which is, after all, what a pardon is, is to let go of resentment. And I think we could use more of that rather than less. Yes, well... I want to thank you, Martha Minow. We've gone far afield, but this is what happens when you put me on the phone with someone who's really smart. It's just a <laughs> consequence. You. Martha Minow is a professor at Harvard Law School. She even ran that school for about a decade. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Technology and politics are moving closer and closer together. And I think it is important uh, to take a look at the power and influence that Amazon has. And these big tech companies aren't just shaping debate, they're shaping the way we live and work. This was a huge breach of trust. People come to Facebook every day and they depend upon us to protect their data. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. We're the hosts of If Then, Slate's new podcast that decodes the heavy tech news flying out of Washington, Silicon Valley, and beyond. Every week, we bring you up to speed on everything from the Russian hacking scandal to the machines that help decide your local voting maps. Find If Then wherever you get your podcasts. And now the spiel. Yesterday, we spoke of Don Blankenship. He's running to get the Republican nomination for Senate uh, from West Virginia this year. And he was doing pretty well in the polls for a while. Oddly, since he made his fame and fortune overseeing a mine that exploded in the worst mining disaster in the United States since 1970, and that sent him to jail. So yesterday at a debate at Wheeling Jesuit University, where I spent some of the happiest days of my youth, he joined five other potential nominees and used words to chip away at the rocky hearts of the mountain state. Not a fiery speaker. He did manage to be pretty offensive, nevertheless. Uh, I see a tremendous opportunity brought on by President Trump's election, by the uh, gas uh, explosion, if you will, the gas uh, boom in West Virginia. Well, I won't, and West Virginians shouldn't. The day before the explosion in Blankenship's mine that killed 29 workers, the worst mining disaster, like I said, in over 40 years, the day before the mine received two citations, in the year and a half before that explosion, the mine had received 600 violations. It had amassed 1,342 violations in the preceding five years. Now Don Blankenship is running against government overregulation. Don Blankenship was convicted of conspiring to violate mine safety laws. And West Virginians all know that. 
Did you know that Don Blankenship's trial was not about the mine explosion? What? Who the hell are you? Oh, yeah. The Obama judge wouldn't even let Don mention the explosion. Obama knew Don had nothing to do with the explosion, so he wanted to put Don in prison to hide the truth. Oh, you're one of those super annoying radio ads where two people have a highly scripted conversation. An unnatural conversation? That's right, a phony dialogue, and they come to, at least in this case, a kind of bonkers conclusion. West Virginians know that Obama was against them and Cole. They also know that Don fought back. I am voting for Don. Now that I know the truth... Me too. And thus, the West Virginia version of the Me Too movement was born. Blankenship's run seems equally motivated by revenge, earnest political conviction, and some form of image rehab. Yesterday, on the Wheeling College stage, he once more asserted that his background, primarily CEO of Massey Energy and the upper big branch explosion, would be a net positive for his campaign. The UBB tragedy and the aftermath, I think, is actually going to help me in this election in the coal fields because coal miners know what really happened, i.e. that the government cut the airflow shortly before the explosion and that it was a natural gas and not a coal dust explosion. Well, Blankenship does have some ads with coal miners saying just that. On the other hand, there are plenty of families of coal miners who probably disagree with that statement. We buried our kid because of you. Robert Atkins shouted that at Blankenship as he left the courthouse after being found guilty. But nationally, Republicans tend to be forgiving of captains of industry who transgress in, say, duping customers of fake online universities or duping angry tenants or duping golf club members who were ripped off. And Blankenship does know how to position himself. He's Trumpy. He's Trumpier than Trump. In the state where Trump has the highest approval ratings in the nation, it is a natural argument to compare yourself to Trump. And I think in Blankenship's case, it fits. If he were to win the nomination, it would be a huge headache for the GOP, which strongly believes they can pick up the seat currently held by Joe Manchin. Of the six potential nominees on the stage, Blankenship was not even the most extreme by some measures. Jack Newborough drives a semi-truck for a living, proudly claims he makes $45,000 a year. Also, he had a gun on him. I'm carrying right now. Newborough is an authentic citizen activist. Blankenship is a plutocrat with blood on his hands. That's why Blankenship has a huge lead over Newborough. Now, Blankenship's not first in any of the polls that come out. In fact, he was second in a recent poll that was released by the frontrunner in the race, who's Patrick Morrissey, the state attorney's general. Now, whenever a campaign releases its own poll, you have to take it with a grain of salt. They usually are pretty optimistic for their candidate, and there might be some trickery going on. Uh, pretending that Blankenship is a stronger candidate than he is just to arouse the passions of Republicans in West Virginia and get them to come out and vote. But anyway, that poll, if you trust the Morrissey campaign, had Morrissey at 24% and Blankenship at 22.6%. Other polls have Morrissey first, United States Representative Evan Jenkins second, and Blankenship third. But if the race comes down to the sitting attorney general and a sitting member of Congress, maybe West Virginians will go with the outsider, will listen to the siren song or the dangerous drone of Don Blankenship and be reminded of their hero. I uh, want to point out, though, that the Charleston Gazette has slandered me for 30 years. And the other day I was very pleased to see an article that they said I was Trumpier than Trump. 
and uh, I think that's a, that's a fact. I agree with uh, Comey that his tie is a little too long, and I, uh, I think he tweets too much. But if that's the only failings that he has, uh, I think we're in for a great uh, six years ahead of us or seven, and I think that we should all, uh, you know, be very grateful that we have President Trump. He's uh, the best president we've had since Ronald Reagan. Agreed. If those were the only problems we had, too long a tie and too much tweeting, I'd be grateful too. But that's, of course, not the only problem we have with our president. The president disregards laws, he skirts justice, and he lies wantonly. Don Blankenship served a prison sentence, and he now denies culpability. Donald Trump says he could kill a guy on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. We will see if Don Blankenship's negligence can contribute to the death of 29 in Raleigh County, West Virginia, yet he'd still be rewarded for it. And that's it for today's show. Did you know that Pierre Bienname, just producer, has never had grapefruit in his life? No, Mary Wilson, senior producer. You don't say. Well, there's no record of grapefruit consumption. Have you ever heard him mention grapefruit on the gist? Hmm. Come to think of it, I haven't. Go on. In fact, Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has no record in Pierre's personnel file of grapefruit consumption. And you know, grapefruit is important to the GIST audience. That's right, Mike. It's a great supply of vitamin C and helps local farmers. Do you know what else is true about grapefruit? Is it that it helps us to thank our Slate Plus listeners who help support the show, learn more about the many benefits of membership, including ad-free versions of this show, at slate.com slash gist plus? No, not at all. It is weird that you'd even mention it on the gist. Well, thanks for telling me this serious and troubling information about Pierre and Grapefruit. Also, um peru de peru du peru. Thanks for listening. 